This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're here to tell you everything that's hot in the book world. And if you've got something to tell us, you have a question that you'd like us to answer, then uh, just drop us a note. I'm rfox at publishersweekly.com. Mark is mrotella at publishersweekly.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. We are at Pub Weekly Radio. That's P-U-B-W-K-L-Y Radio. And we are always glad to hear from you. Today, uh, Alan Bates, owner of uh, Borderlands Books in uh, San Francisco, I'm sorry, that's Alan Bates, is going to tell us how his independent bookstore plans to survive in the ebook area. Then, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will join us to talk about some fabulous fashion books. But first, we've got a sneak preview of next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. You heard it here first. What's big on the nonfiction list? Well, we, it looks like I think our biggest one might be uh, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, which is debuting at number three. Right. So that's her, that's her memoir. This is her memoir. And um, so, yeah, the, debuted at number three. I don't have the numbers right now as to how many that's sold so far. But um, she's the uh, 350. This is the, I'm sorry, uh, hers is the 354th book by Supreme Court Justice. Um, though a few are written by sitting ju- justices and fewer still are memoirs. And uh, what's kind of interesting about not only this book, but about her audiobook for a lot of you audiobook files out there, is uh, it's uh, being read by Rita Moreno. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think she should have a you know, wonderful voice uh, mm-hmm. for, for those of you who are driving. Um, this might be one to put in your, uh, in your car. Yeah, definitely. And it, it is interesting to see a memoir coming out from a sitting Supreme Court justice. Do you think it's going to affect how people see her and uh, maybe what people expect from her decisions? Oh, I think I think it'll definitely be uh, I think people will, will will see her possibly differently or um, I think it just offers a really great window into her life. I mean, she's the uh, uh, daughter of immigrants. And um, I, I think this she, I think she's got a wonderful story to tell. Um, and uh, looks to be pretty solidly written as well. Mm-hmm. So um, also on our uh, on a bestseller list, we uh, have one by uh, General Stanley McChrystal uh, called um, My My Share of the Task. Uh, he mm-hmm. was outed in 2010 by a Rolling Stone article uh, for simply uh, taunting his bosses, um, uh, to put it lightly, um, and and he tells about his time in uh, in the military, and uh, tells about his you know his life there. So, um, I've heard that that book is uh, maybe not so flattering to the Obama administration. No, this is true from what I gather. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now moving along to certain books that um, are coming out this month in fact this week um i think maybe we'll talk a little bit about memoirs sure i would love to hear more about what's going on there i know that's one of your areas of expertise exactly so here's one that's coming uh it's called fresh off the boat a memoir by eddie huang now uh eddie is the founder of the popular east village uh food shop that's uh, east village in manhattan's uh uh, close to the Lower East Side. It's called Ba House, and that's uh, B-A-O uh, House. 
H A U S. And he so tells for for those of us uh, who who aren't maybe fluent in Chinese. Can you explain the pun? Yeah, this is also, I mean, uh, uh, I think he, he talks about, you know, growing up Chinese, actually uh, uh, growing up here, his parents had emigrated here to Orlando and uh, where his father opened up a restaurant. And mm-hmm. he talks about wrestling with his, ch- you know, Chinese identity, uh, but all the while incorporating a love of old school hip hop, Michael Jackson, Charles Barkley, and even Jonathan Swift's satirical and modest proposal into his book. So it's kind of one of these food memoirs that we've been seeing, you know, we've been seeing more and more uh, food memoirs or, you know, memoirs written by restaurateurs. Um, And this one just, just takes it a little bit beyond the food to, to his own life. I don't think he talks as much about food, but he certainly does talk, uh, you know, once he became a restaurateur and opened up these restaurants. So uh, this one, this one has been getting a lot of, uh, uh, I, I think a lot of, uh, pre-publicity, so I think this should be a pretty good one to look out for. And PW gave it a starred review. And we gave it a starred review, exactly, mm-hmm. yep. Um, and um, uh, let me see here. Uh, we also have this one in another starred review, uh, Susanna Sonnenberg, uh, She Matters, A Life in Friendships. Um, she is a writer of a uh, well-received book, Her Last Death, and she this is in ways a tour through uh, female friendships that have inspired her, broken her, and as we say, brought her back to life. So this is this is something that hmm. she's already gotten a lot of great attention uh, for this. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. We're giving you a sneak peek of the bestsellers list in next week's issue of Publishers Weekly and also some other interesting books that are coming out just around the corner. Another book that I wanted to mention uh, that uh, that just debuted on our bestseller mm-hmm. list is uh, coming in at number 13 on the nonfiction list, and that's Lawrence Wright's Going Clear. This is an interesting expose of the Church of Scientology, right? and it's already getting a lot of interesting attention, some positive and some negative. Right, exactly, yeah, and we've, we've had a couple of, uh, yeah, and... I mean, uh, I think there have been uh, reviews already in the Times, and surely I, I think uh, uh, we, we've been people have been hearing from the Scientology about this, the Church of Scientology about this book too. But this is another one that um, is is, gonna, is making a splash. Yeah, this is it's, it seems to be a pretty big expose. Yes, exactly, exactly, and um, and I, I think that's those are the big ones for. Uh, uh, for that are on on the bestseller list, and I'm just still thinking of of memoirs that um, I've, I'm finding pretty pretty interesting. And one is by Wendy Lawless uh, called Chanel Bonfire, and and this one uh, Wendy Lawless talks about um, being raised on the Upper East Side, um, the Barry Tony apartment uh, with her sister and her mother, her, her mother who. Uh, uh, is often out. Her, her mother, who at one time was married, uh, but seems to be dating a lot, and they go to private school. And it wasn't until gradually Wendy, as as a child, uh, into a teen, uh, started discovering that they weren't really all that well off. And in fact, her mother would, would kind of uh, go from boyfriend to boyfriend to help support them. Hmm. And, um, and and this, it's, this is another book that's been getting picked up quite a bit. Um, and, uh, I, I think she's, it's, it's a, you know, dysfunctional you know, tale of dysfunction of a mother daughter relationship. And, uh, she, she has a really good humorous way 
of talking about it, talking about you know devastating, uh, uh, you know, I think a potentially devastating uh, upbringing. She herself, Wendy Lawless, became a uh, actress on Broadway. Now lives right. out in Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's it seems like a, it, in in her uh, in her voice and her writing, it's a um, pretty nicely paced uh, memoir. So I, I have a question for yeah. you about memoirs. This is not a section of the bookshop that I know a lot about, but my, sex, my, my sense of it is that uh, memoirs tend to be written by people who are already famous. So it's more a story of how I got to where I am and mm-hmm. you know, by someone who already has name recognition. So, for example, if I say Sonia Sotomayor's memoir, then you know, you know who she is. She's a Supreme right. Court justice, you know, the first Latina on the Supreme Court and so forth. And because you already know who she is, you want to pick up her book. But is it also possible to make a splash as a memoir writer when nobody knows who you are, when you're just doing it on the strength of your writing? Does that happen? Yes, and that's been happening quite a bit. And, you know, it, it used to be said, it probably still is in many uh, creative uh, program, creative writing programs in, in colleges and grad schools that, uh, you know, that first novel is often autobiography. I mean, thinly veiled mm-hmm. autobiography. And I think at some point, people started saying, well, why am I trying to even fictionalize this? Let me just tell my story. And it, it's been kind of helped as, as, um, in, in our culture by, uh, um, all the reality TV shows sure. that we've had. So, so people are now not, it used to be kind of a taboo to, uh, not divulge too much about yourself and to, to hide all the uglinesses in your life, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or what one might perceive as ugliness is what society might perceive as that. But it seems like people are now feeling more and more comfortable telling their stories. And I think the books that are getting picked up and the books that are getting published, you know, there's, there, there, there has to be a narrative arc and some do it better than others, but that also lies so much in the voice of the telling and the story that they, that they have to tell. So, so you're, you're, you are seeing, I, I've seen, been seeing in the, in the last three years, more memoirs than I think I've ever seen. I mean, it's it just the, the, the genre just keeps growing and growing. And, um, often, you know, from what I hear, the good ones are, uh, uh, kind of looked at by, uh, film companies and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, want to be made into a story or at least the rights are bought. So when you, when you talk about a narrative arc that you basically mean beginning, middle and end, or you mean someone experiences growth and becomes a better person, that, that kind of thing, what we usually think of as plot. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But, but real life doesn't fit that in a lot of ways. Do you think that's a, a, that must be a real challenge? Yeah. I think what, what I find with memoirs is the ones that, uh, uh, can be bland are the ones that just go from, from day to day, uh, in, in, in the life of someone, mm-hmm. um, they think that their life in it of itself is, is that interesting and sure they may have some things that happen, but, but it's how you present it. I think by maybe narrowing it to one instance in the life, I think like, um, uh, Wendy does here that, that certain like limiting it to a few years of, uh, of of your childhood or, or of one's point in life, and you develop the story around that, and you you kind of um, uh, impose upon it fictional narrative skills in telling a story. And I think the people who do that well are the ones who succeed in it. Mm-hmm. And there's there's another one. It's um, Rosie Shap, Drinking with Men. Um, she uh, has a drink column for the New York Times. She talks about drinks. Um, she. Sp- uh, if I remember correctly, 
dropped out of college or, or, or waited to go to college, uh, Trinity College in Dublin, uh, just because she spent a lot of time in, in bars. Hmm. And uh, she's totaled up, she says, an estimated 13,000 hours in bars. And um, Wow. Quite a bit, quite a bit. Now, I, I, I think this memoir doesn't come off so much as one who is a big drinker. Rather than that in the... Uh, uh, maybe the Irish pub tradition is one who spends time with um, maybe strangers and just has conversations. And uh, she talks about these conversations. She talks about the people she meets. And um, um, she comes from a uh, line of, of writers in her family. Her father, uh, Dick Schaap, was a uh, well-known sports writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and her her brother, actually, is a uh, anchor. Jeremy Schaap is an anchor at ESPN. Um, so maybe not writing for, for you know, print, but, but another medium. And her cousin, uh, Phil Schaap, is a jazz historian and radio uh jazz host so um anyway she's she's uh she comes from a good lineage of of uh of writers so this is and that's her book called drinking with men i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio we're talking about memoirs and mark has some interesting memoirs that have just come out recently or are just about to come out Yes, exactly. And we have another one by Rebecca Dana. And this one is the Jiu-Jitsu Rabbi and the Godless Blonde, A True Story. Wow, what a title. Yes, exactly. The Jiu-Jitsu Rabbi. The Jiu-Jitsu Rabbi. And it's actually kind of an interesting take. She's a Pittsburgh native. Uh, grew up of dreaming, you know, uh, dreaming of moving to New York City and having a uh, sex in the city kind of uh, writing life. As many people do. As many people do. And I think uh, in certain ways she accomplished it. She's a, uh, she writes for uh, various publications. I think she has for the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, the New York Observer. And I believe, I'm not too sure where she is right now. Uh, but uh, she talks about uh, moving to New York, uh, having a boyfriend who uh, cheats on her, dumps her. And she decides she wants to just do it on her own. So she moves to the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Oh, that's and, where I live. Oh, fan, oh, fantastic. So you know, uh, perhaps, uh, the area. She she mm-hmm. becomes roommates with a, a 30-year-old man named Cosmo, who happens to be a Lubavitch rabbi, who himself is uh, questioning his own uh, uh, faith and puts it in, uh, temporarily anyway, in jujitsu. And uh, so this is the uh, jujitsu rabbi, and she, as she calls herself, is the godless blonde. And I think this tale, um, and, and this is another one that kind of sets up a premise, um, kind of a temporal pre- you know, premise where um, she talks about this relationship, mm-hmm. uh, a, a platonic relationship that develops between the uh, two of them. I don't think we hear enough about platonic relationships. I would love to see more people talking about it being possible to just be friends mm-hmm. and not, not in some sort of buried sexual tension way, but really just being friends. I would love to see more memoirs about friendship. Yeah, and I wonder if she did. Well, this is and also the one that I, well, along those lines, She Matters, uh, you know, A Life in Friendship, the uh, mm-hmm. Susanna Sonnenberg, it talks about her various uh, relationships with and friendships with, with women and how each one has affected her in a different way and how each relationship has taken on a different uh, aspect of that. So there, there, and I have actually, now that you say that, there have been a, uh, quite a few memoirs on, uh, on friendships that I've seen, or at least with friendships in the title. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one other one, and this is, um, 
uh, a big name uh, memoir that we were talking about you had mentioned before uh, is Never Going Back, Winning the Weight Loss Battle for Good. And this is by Al Roker, mm. uh, uh, who's a uh, well-known name, well-known name me- meteorologist and the author of Don't Make Me Stop This Car. And he talks about basically growing up fat. And his nickname in school was um, Fat Albert. And this is something he didn't want to own. And uh, he talks about how um, he, you know, he lived with up until, I guess, when he got married, morbid obesity. He was 280 pounds when he got married to ABC News and 2020 correspondent Deborah Roberts. And uh, since then, you know, he's gone through decades of yo-yo dieting. And he's just finally made the decision to drop weight and to keep it off. And, and this is a, this is a book that's coming out, which I don't know, it could be, could be inspiring for, for many uh, readers and those who may want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely that, that path is not for everybody. I think there are some people who are perfectly comfortable with their bodies the way they are. And then some people who, as you said, go through the yo-yo dieting and their bodies are just going to do what they're going to do. And sure. if they want to be big bodies, then that's, that's what they're going to be. Exactly. Exactly. This is true. And, and even, I, I, um, uh, there are some books out there that have talked about that, um, that weight is not necessarily, you know, heavyweight bad for your health. There are plenty of healthy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fat people. Uh, yeah, there's a movement called health at every size. Uh, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. Is, is definitely worth, worth exploring. Right. If exactly. people are interested in that. So I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we're going to be talking with San Francisco bookseller Alan Beats about what it means to own a bookstore in the digital age. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Alan Beats on the line. He's the owner of Borderlands Books, a San Francisco bookstore that's been thriving in tough times. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. So um, you just sent out a newsletter, which I'm delighted to still get, even though I haven't lived in San Francisco for eight years now, because I miss your store a lot, and I'm always glad to keep up with what's going on there. But you said in that newsletter that over the past three years, the amount of money spent on print books in the United States has dropped by 25%. That's a, that's a staggering number. But your store keeps going. So tell me, what's your secret? Well, I think probably the thing that we have, have going for us is a combination of our specialty and um, the fact that uh, we're sort of used to operating in tough times. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds silly to to say that you've only been only been in business for fifteen years, but in sort of bookseller years, that's barely a tick of the clock. Lots of stores out there, you know, have been in business for you know twenty, thirty, forty years, and uh, for us, we opened the same year that Amazon opened, and mm-hmm. when we opened, all of the big chain bookstores like Borders and Barnes and Noble were in business already, and so we're sort of used to things being tough, and. Mm-hmm. I think that's informed a lot of the ways that we do business. So we just work on really tight margins and and try to save pennies where we can. So you mentioned your specialty. Now you only sell genre fiction, right? Science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So, Correct. Um, so how how does that help you out? 
Well, it makes us it in the first place it allows us to really get in depth and have a tremendously deep selection of titles within our specialty. Mm-hmm. You know, my my store is about 2000 square feet. And were you to try to fit a general interest bookshop in that sort of area, you wouldn't really be able to carry a you wouldn't be able to carry a lot of the obscure and unusual titles. You right. just wouldn't have enough space. Whereas by specializing on a narrow a narrow set of genres, we import books from England. We have titles published by small presses. We do rare and antiquarian books as well as new books. So people can be confident when they come to my shop that if it's available and currently in print in our field, we probably have it in stock. Right. And you have used books as well. We do. That was, we originally started as, as exclusively a used bookstore, and then we added new books progressively over the first four years that we were in business. Oh, I see. I didn't know that, actually. I sort of always assumed it was the other way around. No. The store opened 50% of the original inventory of the store were my books. Uh-huh. So this was really just a way of clearing out your personal library. <laughs> no, it was a decision made very with with considerable agonizing because I had no money when I opened, and so ah, I, I couldn't buy inventory. Uh huh. But you, it seems like uh, you've gone pretty well since then. It's been it's been good. It's been really good. Mm-hmm. And how do you? Uh, d- I I I, I want to say with with people who read science fiction, fantasy, horror. Is it true to say that there are many more uh, uh, folks who read genre fiction who might download it uh, as an ebook? And if so, do you get many uh, customers coming in and you provide them the way to download it as an ebook? Well, science fiction, especially, I think is a, or science fiction readers, I should say, are a demographic that that are very comfortable with technology typically and you know are enthusiastic about ebooks uh horror and fantasy perhaps a bit less so but um we do have customers who want to buy ebooks unfortunately we don't have a way of 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 really selling ebooks and i have customers that have been after me for quite a while to sort of work something out but it's not a simple problem to solve so we have customers who would love to buy ebooks from us but unfortunately we don't have a way of selling them you know, we had been talking with Judith Rosen last week, who's uh, PW's senior bookselling editor, about uh, independent bookstores that were setting up Kobo sales so that they could sell ebooks to their customers. But it sounds like there's still some bugs to work out with that. I've been looking at Kobo, and I'm still, I'm still kind of on the fence. I've also been talking with a guy named um, uh, Darren Sennett, who works with Zola Books which is also, they're just getting started as opposed to Kobo, which is much more established. And they're also trying to work out a way to effectively partner with independent bookstores. So I, I suppose I should say that with the sort of the holidays and I, I run two business out of both a bookstore and a cafe, I haven't had time to really investigate Kobo enough to come to a conclusion. I have a suspicion it might be an answer. I'm just not sure if it's the right answer. Right. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with San Francisco independent bookstore owner Alan Beats. Now uh, we're talking about ebooks, and you you carry uh, print books uh, from all over the world, it seems, or at least from from the UK or other English speaking countries. And you carry uh, used antiquarian books. What do print books provide that ebooks can't? Say for you or for your customers. 
Well, I think in the first place, there's the sort of sensual experience of reading that is very different with a print book as opposed to an e-book. I've read a fair number of, of electronic books. I have an iPad, and I use that to, to read, um, especially things like uh, manuscripts and um, advanced copies of books that aren't available in print yet. Mm-hmm. But reading a book feels different, and even different books feel differently, depending on whether it's hardcover or softcover, how big the book is. You know, the last time I read a Stephen King novel in hardcover, I had to rest it on a pillow, and that definitely <laughs> felt different from reading a reading a you know a little paperback. Uh-huh. So there's the there's the physical sensation of reading the book. There's the um, you know the smell, especially the smell of an old book. Um, I love it. Some people don't enjoy it so much. I so think you can get a bottle as a as a perfume, right? Old old uh, book smell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the other thing is that there's the ownership of a tangible object as opposed to, you know, a, a data file. Um, you don't, you know, you can't sit in your living room and kind of look at your bookshelf with eBooks. Mm-hmm. And I have very, you know, fond memories and, and associations of a time and a place when I got a book that are associated with that physical object. And I don't think people have that association with eBooks. So those, are, also, those are two things. I've also found that having a physical library is a very social experience. It's not just you sitting in your living room. It's other people coming into your living room and seeing something on your bookcase and saying, oh, can I borrow that? Mm-hmm. And also what it says about your, your own character. I mean, Rose, I'm sure that when you, when you come to someone's house for the first time, you look at the books on their shelf. Of course right? I do. It, it's, it's, like, it's like they took a personality test and left the results for you to find. <laughs> It, exactly. And you even can see on the basis of how worn the books are, that mm-hmm. tells you even more. Yeah. It's not just coffee table books. Of course, I go looking at their shelves. It feels very personal. It is, it's, it's almost like reading somebody's diary. But I, yeah. I, just, I just went over to somebody's house for the first time, and I couldn't help myself. I just went straight for the bookcase and said, what do they have? What do they have that I know that I don't know? What could we talk about that we have in common? Or what could they teach me about that I've always wanted to learn? You know, oh, this person has a whole shelf of, I, I don't know, Greek plays. And, and I really don't know anything about the classical Greek plays. And maybe we could talk about that, and they could tell me where to start so it it really it's a conversation starter in a lot of ways exactly and what do bookstores provide that online retailers can't i I mean for you for your bookstore or even say something like your bookstore that other mega stores can't three things i would say first a personality Mm -hmm. Uh, my bookstore people may like it people may dislike it but i guarantee that my bookstore is unlike any other bookstore on the planet. It's absolutely true. And there's, you know, again, talking about the sort of experience of books, walking into my shop is not like walking into any other bookstore, whereas buying a book on a computer is like buying a book on a computer and is is kind of undifferentiated. And likewise, going into a Borders, or sorry, Borders no longer exists. You can't go into a Borders, but going into a Barnes & Noble, there's variations on what the stores are like, but essentially it's walking into a Barnes & Noble. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it in Schenectady or Los Angeles. Right. So that's one thing. Second thing is the quality of recommendations and the quality of of stumbling stumbling across books 
that you notice a book because it happens to be sitting in the spot where the book that you were looking for would be, but they're out of stock. And so you pick that book up and you perhaps discover a book or an author that you would have never discovered otherwise. Mm-hmm. And Amazon tries to do that with their recommendations and, you know, one person, you know, other people who bought this book bought that book, but it doesn't really work that way. And then finally, there's the social experience of being in a bookstore and talking to people, both the staff and the other customers. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've, I've seen customers have, you know, hour-long conversations in the bookstore that, that they, they'd never met in their lives before, but they happen to start chatting about a book and and they talk for an hour. So you say that in uh, for 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 book buyers going to your store, the, your your store is unlike uh, many or any others. So what for our listeners, if one of them were to walk into your bookstore for the first time, what would they see, and how is the store laid out? Well, the thing that people notice, I would say most often when they walk into my shop, well, two things. The first thing is people tend to be surprised at how sort of clean and well-organized it is. And I think that there is a little bit of a reputation that independent bookstores have, um, and especially science fiction specialty bookstores, that they tend to have a little bit of a rummage sale quality. Yep. And I like that in stores that I shop in, but I wouldn't want to work in that environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other thing that people tend to notice is that um, the building that I'm in is 100 years old, and the uh, floors are original clear fur which I refinished myself when we moved in. And so the wood floors are really kind of extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that people notice kind of as soon as they walk in the door. And in terms of how my shop is organized, well, it's, you know, there's not so much variation that you can do in terms of arranging a bookstore. There's shelves all the way around the walls, and there's shelves running down the center of the, center of the room. Mm-hmm. And um, the sections are divided on the basis of sub sort of genre, and also divided on the basis of binding, because we find that if we take the smaller size paperbacks and put them all together and the large size paperbacks and hardcovers together, we can fit a lot more books. Right. We also divide on the basis of science fiction and fantasy is in one section and horror is in another section, because the, though the readership does cross over to some extent, it doesn't cross over a lot. And if we tried to combine it all, it also would be hard to have enough continuous wall space to put it all in one section. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We are talking with Alan Beats, who owns Borderlands Books in San Francisco. And, Alan, you had mentioned opening up a cafe next door. I remember when you did that, and it was at a time that was really economically difficult for a lot of people and a lot of businesses. And then there you were expanding your business. So tell me a little bit about that venture. I decided to open a cafe essentially as a hedge against the progression of both internet sales, internet book sales, and also ebooks. Mm-hmm. By having a cafe, my logic was first that it will be a long time before anyone's buying a latte online. <laughs> that is <laughs> probably true. We're, we're a not, ways away from the Star Trek replicators. Exactly. Until we hit the Star Trek universe, that's not going to happen. So it is a business that is relatively secure. again, sales loss to to internet sales. The other part of my plan was that I would allow me to have a business that could scale if I needed to scale back the book selling business. So in other words, 
I could shrink the 2,000 square feet of my bookstore to 1,500 square feet, add 500 square feet of cafe, which would then pay the rent on the remaining five on the 500 square feet that I pulled back from. So essentially, it would give me a way of slowly shrinking my store if necessary while expanding the cafe business rather than reaching a point where the rent or overhead for my current space was unsustainable and I had to move or close. And moving nowadays in San Francisco, one might as well close because it'll be tremendously hard to find another space. Right. So that was my my idea behind it. Mm-hmm. I had no idea the economy was going to collapse right about the time that I opened my cafe. Had I, I might have planned a little differently. And um, it was really hard mm-hmm. when we first opened the cafe. Um, I worked tremendously long hours, both running the bookstore and also being the, you know, bottle washer and cashier at the cafe. And uh, I also ate a lot of leftover bagels. Yep. But we managed to make it through. The economy is doing better and the cafe is doing quite well and the bookstore is doing well. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with San Francisco independent bookstore owner Alan Beats, and we're talking about his cafe and the bookstore. And, you know, I've always wondered about the uh, cafes and bookstores. I I wondered if people would just read there and not buy the books, or is that something that have you found that cafes promote conversation, that people would buy the books, or is it something you may not be concerned about because they're already buying the coffees and the uh, scones and uh, bagels? I think that when cafes are combined with bookstores, that does happen, that people don't don't buy the book. Worse, people damage the book because they spill coffee on it. Um, and so I think it would be a problem. The way that my space is set up, there's a very, very clear demarcation in between the cafe space and the bookstore space. And we don't allow books that haven't been purchased into the cafe. Mm-hmm. So we sort of dodged that problem because I do believe that it would be a problem. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't I hadn't heard of that. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean it was it was originally a store next door, right? And then the store closed and you took the space over to be the cafe. That's yeah, that's correct. And mm-hmm. originally when the building was constructed, the two storefronts were connected by a, a very large doorway that had subsequently been closed and so I reopened that doorway. So essentially, it's two addresses, two separate storefronts, but there's a, a six-foot by nine-foot connecting doorway between the two of them, which gives me that sort of clear demarcation between the two areas. Right. And and you had talked about um, possibly needing to shrink the bookstore or uh, the the cafe being a hedge against the book business changing. How How do you see that going in the next few years? I mean, I know it's very hard to predict anything about the book selling business or the books business as a whole right now, it's so much in flux, but you have a unique perspective on it. So where do you see things going? I see the business of physical books continuing to, to shrink and the entire printed books industry contracting basically. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I think that they'll, still be plenty of publishing, and I think there'll still be plenty of books written, but I think that they're going to shift more and more towards uh, electronic format. We're already seeing, last year was relatively good for us, but it was because of hardcover books selling better, and the what we call mass market, the small size paperback books, mm-hmm. selling a lot worse. We've seen the sales of, of 
the small size paperbacks dropped steadily over the last two years. And I think that's matched with sort of overall industry trends. And since those paperbacks are kind of a quick, disposable, easy to transport read, I think that it's ebooks that are taking that market away. And I think that market is going to continue to shrink. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you, you said um, hardcover sales are going up. I, I wouldn't have expected that somehow. Well, there are less bookstores out there. Um, and people who want to buy books are still going to be buying books. And so I think that we're collecting some of that business. I also think that people who, people who don't want to buy eBooks are interested in books as a physical object. And Mm -hmm. if you are interested in books as a physical object, I think that you're more likely to buy hardcovers Mm -hmm. than the sort of average reader. Right. Makes sense. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with San Francisco independent bookstore owner Alan Beats. And Alan, tell us which books are uh, moving off the shelves right now, and uh, do you have any bread-and-butter titles, the uh, kind of perennial favorites? Oh, yes, we do, Mark. Um, <laughs> for, for my business, probably the perennial favorite, and that has been for years, is uh, George Martin's uh, Game of Thrones books. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, the series is called The Song of Ice and Fire. The first book is The Game of Thrones. Um, the uh, television program, every time a new season comes out, we see a huge boost in sales. Um, so that's a, a constant seller. Uh, J.R. Tol- Tolkien, of course, is also consistently popular, and every time, you know, every time a film comes out, there's a big boost mm-hmm. for those as well. Um, after that, a lot of the classics, uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, Ursula Le Guin, you know, authors who, whose sort of footprint in my field is, is enormous and inescapable. Right. All of those sell steadily. I think it's a truism in the book business as a whole that uh, what we call backlist, sort of classic titles that have been in print for years and years, is, mm-hmm. is what sells steadily. And that's certainly our experience here. In terms of recent books that have done tremendous, they're really flying off the shelves. Um, a uh, fantasy series by an author named Robert Jordan yep, we were uh, has about just that last finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Memory of Light, yep. which is by uh, Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson, is the final book in a 13-book series that has been published over the last, I want to say, 20 years? 23 more? years. 25 23 years. Mm-hmm. That is selling better than any hardcover in recent memory. Uh, we have some sort of more idiosyncratic authors. Again, given the, given our specialty focus, uh, someone who's a huge bestseller for us may not get much notice outside of our field. Uh, there's a British writer named Joe Abercrombie, mm-hmm. and his most recent book is uh, called Red Country. And it's sort of George R. R. Martin meets Sergio Leone. It's kind of a Western-flavored fantasy with a sort of revenge theme. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's been selling very well for us. Um, young author named Ben Winters, first novel called The Last Policeman, has also been very successful for us and I think hasn't necessarily gotten a lot of notice outside of the specialty store and kind of the hardcore genre readership. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are a few off the top of my head. 
All right. Well, Alan, I really wish you the best of luck with uh, the the economics of book selling. Certainly times are changing, but it sounds like you've got a really good handle on what you need to do to survive. Um, we, well, we've been, what... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rose. <laughs> no, I just, I just you know, we, we've been keeping an eye on things here, and um, really it's hard to know which way things are going. But uh, you, you may be right that the, the printed book world is going to shrink. I'm afraid that it is. But, um, you know, the world changes. Nothing, nothing stays the same. And I think the print publishing is going through a lot of changes right now. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this is Alan Bates, who's the owner of Borderlands Books and its associated cafe on Valencia Street in San Francisco. Alan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, uh, Rose. And thank you, Mark. I had a, had a great time. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Editor Jasmine Chan will tell us about some fabulous fashion books. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Now, every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan is here to tell us about some splendid-sounding fashion and art titles. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm probably way too excited to discuss this topic. I just took over the fashion books uh, category from Mark recently, <laughs> which I wrested control of because I'm just even more enthusiastic than oh, he can know, be about it. And I know how much you love them. <laughs> I, I do really love them. Um, so one interesting thing in the, the discussion about the print and, and e-books is that with a lot of coffee table art and fashion books, the effect of them can't be replicated in ebook format. Mm -hmm. So they, they don't really translate to PDFs or web pages or digital readers. So the, the president of Yale Univers University Press was talking about that at, a, at an event for university um, presses probably two months ago, saying that one of their bestsellers was the Alexander McQueen Savage Beauty catalog from the 2011 Met exhibit. And so that's a $50 coffee table art book with, there's a hologram on the cover of McQueen's face and a skull. I mean, it's, it's something that you actually have to have before you to understand. So it's, it's really showing that the, the book as a physical object lives on. So, so, so when you say a catalog, like I, I picture something like, like the LLB in catalog, I, I'm clearly, I'm clearly not getting the gist of this, right? So, so you're not talking about like a, a flimsy uh, collection of, of pieces of the paper stapled together. You're talking about a real book. I think catalog is a weird museum term. It, mm -hmm. it really just refers to the, the exhibition book that goes along with right. the exhibit. So in that one, there were photos of McQueen's designs and essays about his process and from his collaborators. And it's a really beautiful book. But that's, that's one that I think a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily be buying those books um, decided that they had to have. Right. So a similar book, um, we have two from Fiden this spring that look really beautiful. One is Philip Tracy by his collaborator, Kevin Davies, who's a fashion photographer. So this book is covering the 20-year collaboration between um, the photographer Davies and the British milliner, Philip Tracy, who, whose name might be familiar to people because of the British royal wedding in 2011. I was going to say all those fancy hats, All right? those fancy hats, some, not all of which are flattering, but which all of which are really beautiful as art objects. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people might remember Princesses Eugenie and 
Beatrice with the fascinators on. Yes. So fascinators obviously are not huge in America, but in Britain, it's it's customary to wear the fascinators and the fancy hats for weddings. So he's, I think he's part of the American discussion of fashion because of the royal wedding, but he's actually had a, a really long career working with designers like Alexander McQueen, Karl Lagerfeld, Valentino, Chanel. We might also have seen his work in the stage costumes and videos of Lady Gaga, so right. the, some of the more outlandish designs. Um, you actually saw some of his work in the, the McQueen exhibit at the Met, too. So the the book has a lot of behind-the-scenes photos, um, pictures of him interacting with his clients, who included Grace Jones and Pr Princess Anne, and the British stylist Isabella Blow, who again was a big supporter of McQueen. And it also shows some behind-the-scenes photos of the preparation leading up to the royal wedding with all the clients coming in because I think probably most of the immediate and extended British royal family and all their friends all had Philip Tracy hats. Mm. So it was basically a huge fashion show of Philip Tracy's designs, at least from the neck up. So his designs are are really fun and beautiful and crazy, and some of them look like alien headdresses, not yeah. so much like hats that people wear to look pretty. Um, but in terms of the, the designs, it's a it's a really stunning book, and that comes out in April. The the other big book from Fiden is is a literal big book called Pattern: A Hundred Fashion Designers, Ten Curators. So this one comes in a its own printed Tyvek shoulder bag. So it's literally wow. oh, an wow. art object. Um, it, I think it's about $80, and it comes out in February. So this one has curators, um, not all of whom are going to be household names. So we have the designers from Preen, um, the British fashion. I'm not quite sure what she does. She's one of those people who appears on the style blogs a lot, Yasmin Sewell. Um, the Oak Park teenage fashion blogger, Tavi Gevinson, whom Mark knows is my hero. <laughs> and the, it, it asked them and several of the other curators to discuss the 100 most influential new designers of the moment. So the book has a 1,000 illustrations with sketches and drawings and computer renderings. So it's, it's literally a huge book. Wow. Um, it's not your subway read. Not really subway read. It's it's a coffee table book. It's a reference book. I mean, the audience for that kind of book would really be people who are serious about fashion, maybe students, um, people in the media. I mean, the the photographs are beautiful, but it's it's a lot of information in there. And the the designers covered include Jason Wu, who designed Michelle Obama's inaugural gown, mm -hmm. and Sarah Burton for McQueen, and. Um, it, it turns out he's my sister's college classmate, Joseph Altuzara. Our reviewer felt that there might have been a little too much coverage of American and, and British designers, but there, it really does cover the international spectrum of designers, and you really get a sense of um, what's exciting right now. Cool. Uh, I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan, who's telling us about some really pretty extraordinary fashion and art titles. Um, you said these are these are mostly for people who are very very serious about fashion. Do you have anything on your list that may, may be a little more accessible for someone who's, who just thinks clothes are cool and is not so much well versed in all the household names? 
Well, I, uh, for them, I would really recommend the Kylie Minogue fashion book, which is just called <laughs> Kylie slash fashion. Mark knows that I was very, very excited to see this on my shelf. And it's been on your shelf and your desk for a while. And right. And it looks like a great book. It's just so beautiful. She's, yeah. I mean, not to diminish her achievements in music and as a pop cultural figure, but she's just like a showgirl doll come to life. Um, the book is is a very glossy, um, over-the-top coffee table book between... That's a collaboration between her and her stylist, William Barker. Mm-hmm. And he's worked with her since 1984. And it covers her stage costumes, um, fashion editorials. She has a very popular line of lingerie in Britain. I mean, generally, Kylie Minogue is a, a much bigger star internationally than she is in America. So yeah. we might know her from the can't get you out of my head video from quite a few years ago now but she's <laughs> I, actually I was gonna say I remember her being on Saturday Night Live in like 2004 or something it's, it's it's been a while since she was a real household name here but actually internationally she sells out stadiums mm-hmm. she 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 has couture costumes for all of her shows hmm. and so the book is publishing on the 25th anniversary of the release of her hit Locomotion and it has designs from Dolce & Gabbana and John Galliano and a whole foreword by Jean-Paul Gaultier and basically that's the book has gorgeous pictures of her looking beautiful in beautiful fashions with quotes from people who are basically talking about how fantastic she is but despite this description it's it's just a very enchanting book She's a she's a very sweet pop star. She's not like Madonna and Lady Gaga. There's literally nothing threatening about her. And she <laughs> and she doesn't doll herself up to in any boundary pushing way. She just looks gorgeous in one hairstyle or makeup look or costume to the next. And so uh what what fashion books are that you see that are coming out that uh anyone anyone that are coming out the, any books that are coming out this January that you know of? Or we're looking ahead. One is coming out in February, so just in a matter of weeks. Um, There's one called The Master of Us All, Balenciaga, His Workrooms, His World from FSG. And this is by the journalist Mary Bloom, who was a reporter for the International Herald Tribune for several decades and was actually a customer of the Couture House of Balenciaga. So these days, you, you hear the name Balenciaga in relation to their very popular line of very expensive handbags. You, mm-hmm. you see right. pretty much everyone in New York carrying them. But back then, when he was the head of the house from 1937 to 1938, you would really identify Balenciaga's designs by the unusual lines of, of the clothes. So the balloon dresses or the sack dresses or the capes or the the hemlines that go from high in the front to low in the back, Mm -hmm. um, those really originated with him. So he's a a very different, I mean, he was a boundary-pushing designer. And I think this is is billed as the first biography of him because he actually was a very private man, not not like the designers who are out on TV today or with their blogs or their, their Twitter feeds. And Balenciaga has actually been in the news lately because the the new head of the design house um, is the Chinese American designer Alexander Wang. So that's been making news a lot in the business world. Well, thanks so much, Jasmine, for being on the show with us today, and we look forward to having you on again talking about uh, all your other uh, categories that you cover. We're speaking with Jasmine Chan, PW Reviews editor. 
And I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Please tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. And again, you can always drop me or Mark an email if you have something you want to hear about on the show. rfox at publishersweekly.com mrotella at publishersweekly.com and on twitter we are pub weekly radio pub wkly radio so please join us there or join us here again next week thank you very much for listening you've been listening to publishers weekly radio show